Welcome to the Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Today, I'm going to be playing a potpourri of stories uh, from some really hot topics that are happening uh, around the country right now. Um, two of them are interviews I did about Cop City down in Atlanta before going down there myself over the past week. The official name of Cop City is the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. It's being promoted by and partially funded by the Atlanta Police Foundation, supported and funded by major corporations such as Target, Home Depot, and Coca-Cola. The facility it would build in the forest includes shooting ranges, road for, a road for high-speed chases, a mock city to practice urban warfare, and a Black Hawk helicopter landing pad. People have been working for almost two years fighting the project, and actually very little has been done so far. One was in January with a local activist named Kay talking about a group of forest defenders who had been arrested and charged with domestic terrorism and faced sentences of up to 35 years in prison. The second interview was with another local activist, Shaheen Rana, after forest defender Manuel Paez Terran, known as Tortuguita, was killed on January 18th, and another group was arrested and charged with domestic terrorism for a total of 18 people. Even though the specific things they were charged with were things like trespassing and building a treehouse in the, in the woods, in the forest. I would say what unites everyone in the movement is the understanding that environmental justice is racial justice and that, you know, racist policing and racist uh, environmental policy are kind of two sides of the same coin. We've heard the police and the Atlanta Police Foundation several times state that the point of Cop City is to boost police morale. that this is essentially a gift that the Atlanta Police Foundation, which is a so-called nonprofit that is funded by the largest corporations in Metro Atlanta, is giving to the police department to basically hurt the cops' bruised egos. Not about the people of Atlanta and protecting the people of Atlanta. In fact, quite the opposite. We know that Cop City not only is supposed to be the largest police training facility in the U.S., but we call it Cop City because the plans for it include a fake city that they will construct inside the forest after destroying the trees. And the fake city will have a barbershop. It will have a grocery store. It will probably have schools where they will practice putting down urban protests. And this is a clear response to the Black Lives Matter movement, the George Floyd Rebellion of 2020. And this is the kind of facility we're talking about. I think that's really important to note because I think some people hear and they say, well, don't the police need to be trained because they are violent and they're killing unarmed Black people every day in this country? We say, no, this is not what the police need. Um, This is what they need for their bruised egos. And this is what they need to train to be able to better put down protests when people are protesting the brutality of the police. But this is how they'll train to better brutalize us. Apparently, there's been some sabotage, which um, some people would say, you know, include in the category of nonviolence and others would say, no, that's not nonviolent. And that that could alienate some people who might otherwise support it. 
Can you comment on that? And I don't know how widespread that is either. I think some machinery has been damaged or destroyed. Yeah. At this point, I can't keep track of all of the different tactics uh, that people have used kind of acting on their own authority in solidarity with the movement, because there's just been so many solidarity acts, whether that's, you know, folks have done banner drops or protester rallies in other cities. Um, there are folks who have been able to identify the contractors that are actually set to do the destruction of the forest itself. And so like we've seen in movements for many decades um, all throughout this country and certainly internationally, folks who decide for themselves what tactics they feel comfortable with. And there's really no kind of centralized organization that says, this is how we protest. This is not how we protest, right? So in, around mid-December, uh, there was a police raid. And um, I don't know exactly if you could describe maybe what happened. But I know the upshot was that six people were arrested and um, charged with domestic terrorism, which is a very heavy charge. So can you just talk about what happened there and where those people are now and, you know, what's happening in their defense? Yes, definitely. Yes, in mid-December, over the course of two days, several police agencies, including federal police agencies, cooperated to um, raid the forest and uh, violently attack people who are in the forest. And now keep in mind that a massive section of this forest is public parkland. And so when the police went in and raided, again, this was Department of Homeland Security, it was the FBI, the GBI, Atlanta Police Department. When they came in and raided, they utilized several tactics, one of which was detaining um, anyone who was in the force, including on the public side of the land. They detained at least one journalist that we know of. They detained residents who were simply going on walks through the forest and harass them and kick them out. And they also use chemical weapons on um, people who are sitting in trees. So they fired, for instance, pepper spray balls and so-called non-lethal or less than lethal weapons at the tree sitters, which might be less than lethal. We could debate that, but it's certainly not less than lethal when you're firing it at somebody who is in a tree and could very easily fall out of that tree to their death. So they use these very violent tactics um, to attempt to extract tree sitters from trees. And in that same day, as they were raiding over those two days, they did arrest six people um, and they charged them with some like very standard kind of misdemeanor charges. But then they did something quite strange, which is they tacked on this domestic terrorism charge. They've been bailed out and um, there's a group called the Atlanta Solidarity Fund that supports protesters whenever they're facing any kind of state repression. And at this point, they all have lawyers. That was Kay, followed by Shaheen Rana, both local activists in Atlanta against Cop City. First and foremost, the community is feeling a heavy loss, right? Like we're, we're collectively grieving. This movement is a, a mass movement. I think it's important to recognize that, that you know, even if people were not sitting in the trees and living in the forest, there are like literally hundreds and hundreds of people who are a part of this movement. Even if we don't all know each other intimately, 
we feel like a community, you know, so the community is is collectively grieving. But at the same time, the community is legitimately angry and enraged, right? Um, it's been a lot to deal with all of that. But, you know, because we are a community, we are all also relying on each other and supporting and caring for each other. And through all of that, I don't want to speak for everyone. I can just speak for myself and the people that I've talked to. You know, this hasn't in any way weakened our resolve to stop Cop City. If anything, it's it's strengthened it because Chortigita's death and the the accompanying state repression of charging people with domestic terrorism shows exactly why it is that we're trying to stop Cop City, why we are fighting against this. Uh, this is exactly what we feared, that the state's repression tactics would get so extreme that they will kill someone just for dissenting. And that's exactly what has happened. And then they will try to suppress further dissent by trying to scare people that they will cage them and imprison them for essentially the, the entirety of their lives, right? Because domestic terrorism charges come with up to 35 years in prison. And that is ludicrous. Even the people that stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021, were not charged with domestic terrorism. What I've seen of the Stop Cop City people is that basically they're saying there's a lot of questions still and they want an invest an independent investigation that doesn't involve any of the police departments that carried out the raid. Can you update us at all on that? Is that, is that moving along or is that everybody just ignoring that demand? There is legal representation for the family to uh, press forward that demand because that's the family's demand. And as far as an update goes, an independent autopsy revealed that Tortuguita was shot 13 times. That already is putting holes in the police's story. We know that the police lie all the time. And this incident from the beginning has had a lot of questions and concerns. Georgia State Patrol says that their cameras were not on when this happened. Their body cameras were not on. Why? Why do you have body cameras if you're not leaving them on, right? Like, which just goes to show that there's no reforming this institution. You know, body cameras were seen as a reform that would prevent police misconduct and like police brutality. And, and they don't. The police just turn them off and face no consequences for that. But then they did say that they have footage of the aftermath, which they have also not released. There's going to be a week of action in Atlanta, uh, March 4th through the 11th. What do you hope or what do you think, you know, might happen to try to shed light on what's been going on? You know, week of actions have been happening in this movement from the beginning, right? And the idea behind the week of actions has always been that this is a mass movement. There are many people who are against this for various reasons. And they are part of the com the community, like the collective community. But, you know, some of them are families. Some of them are young people. So the idea behind the week of action since the beginning of this movement has always been for people to feel like they can take ownership of this movement and put together something that feels right and good to them. So the week of actions, of course, have had marches and protests and rallies, but they've also had care workshops. They've also had 
creative art workshops, right? And I think that those are the things that don't get as much media attention or don't get talked about as much, but they're just as important. So when people when people ask us, well, what what is the alternate to policing then? These week of actions have shown us the world that we're like have are, are trying to show people the world that we are trying to create. There have been conflict resolution trainings during the week of actions. So there have been marches by preschool, uh, by the preschool network where children have put the marches together, um, making signs that say things like, we love trees, please don't cut down our trees. You know, there have been community barbecues, there have been songwriting workshops. It's, it, it's beautiful the way the community shows in varying ways that what we want is not money going towards tools of state violence and repression, but those resources going towards building community. Here's an update. The first week of March was a week of action and solidarity with Stop Cop City, and 23 more people were charged with domestic terrorism after police responded to the destruction of some construction equipment and being hit with rocks and fireworks. Police rampaged through the forest and violently arrested people, many of whom had been just attending a concert in the forest a mile from that other action. Also, just yesterday, an independent autopsy showed that Tortuguita had their hands up when they were shot 13 times by police. Their parents are continuing to demand an independent investigation. Next is an interview with Amanda Kiger, a local activist who lives near East Palestine, Ohio, talking about her response to the Norfolk and Southern derailment in February. They have been told it's safe to go home and to go back, and it's not safe. Our county is very poor. We're some of the lowest economic strata in Ohio. And so some folks were lucky enough that um, before they went back in, they were actually able to pay somebody to come in and say whether their home was safe or not. Um, And those folks that did that, they have been told their home is not safe. And so we have other folks that have no money. They are working poor, working retail restaurant jobs that are being forced with their children to go back when it's not safe. In Pennsylvania, from the folks that went back to a Pennsylvania home, they actually had a data sheet that can help them get a little bit of better protections. It had things in it um, such as like, don't vacuum your your rugs for so many days. Um, Make sure you change your air folders, get your air ducts cleaned out, those kind of things that though isn't really may not help them. These gave them something. The folks on the Ohio side were just told to go home. What is it that's not safe about it? So it still it still has high levels of pollutants in it. So that's what they're detect- they're detecting in. There's still chemical exposure. And in many folks, so this is a small, almost rural town, right? This is a small town. Um, you know, there's a creek that runs right through it. There's creeks that run right through directly through folks' property. And so folks are um, um, literally 20 steps away from their front door to the creek. And they've been told to stay a thousand feet away from that creek because it would the, it would melt rubber. But they're being told to go into their homes that are not 20 feet, like literally 20 foot steps away from the from the bank. Why did this even happen? Do we know yet? So um, we have um, we have been in contact um with a few folks and they are out actually going through the whistleblower process and, and gaining that protection. 
Um, but we've been told um, by folks that work for the railroad and folks that have contracted with the railroad that so there were some safety measures that were cut um, because as a, as a cost saving measure. And, and, you know, that on top of um, in 2015, we begged the federal government to not let these bomb trains come through our communities. We knew this was going to happen. We fought it because they had to have special permission to to, care, to have these types of um, these types of volatile substances on railways that went through communities. The federal government allowed this to happen. They didn't listen. And since that, in 2015, there's been hundreds of of instances much like ours along the routes of these bomb trains. So it's the Department of Transport, Federal Department of Transportation, that didn't listen. Yeah, you know, there's just so much blame to go around from how it happened, what could have stopped it, clear up into the remediation of Ohio's governor refusing to make this a federal disaster so FEMA can come in and give our community the supports it needs. So when you said you want, don't want the bomb trains, that's very understandable. Um, but how, like, I know people fighting pipelines and pipelines that have been delayed or stopped then you know the companies, the oil companies send the send the oil on on bomb trains, and there's been some horrible accidents. Or you know, accidents isn't the right word, but you know, pro- there's been terrible crashes and people have been killed and stuff. What? Um, but you know, people would say, well, the solution isn't to to put it through pipelines because we don't want the pipelines either. So what what do you want to see happen with you know these toxic uh, materials? I would say the many of the materials that on this specific train itself was actually being brought here for the petrochemical hub that's being built here because of the shale gas boom. So I would say we need to we need to have that trust transition. We've been begging for it for years. I know we've been begging for it for the 20 years I've been in the movement. And and so I think that's that big large chasm, right? That that big large thing that we need. We need to stop the now's the time. Why are we still going after this? That's the thing. We have to transition to clean energy. There isn't another choice at this point. Ohio itself used to be number one in solar solar manufacturing. Like we, that was a good piece of our economy. Our economy doesn't have to be gas and oil. We can go move back into that, which was being set, you know, and what I will say is another, uh, another previous administration, you know, was setting us up to move to that. That is just the answer. As long as we're working with volatile substances to feed our greed and to feed our need for electricity, which we do need in plastics, you know, that people think we need, we're going to have this. I think, I think my biggest thought that comes through with, through this, you know, um, you think you kind of get used to saying this after the end, you know, the day and you kind of get used to it, but it just, sometimes it also just pisses you off a little more every time you say it, but really we keep predicting the future. And the disasters we predict keep happening. When are we going to listen? When are we going to listen to science? When are we going to protect our our future and our people? This isn't a surprise. We knew this was coming. That was Amanda Kiger from near East Palestine, Ohio. I'm closing out the show with an interview with Bill McKibben, a writer and activist. Last year, he co-founded Third Act, an organization for folks over 60 that fights for democracy and climate action. He talks about the actions happening around the country on the spring equinox, March 21st, against the four banks providing the most funding to fossil fuel projects. 
Uh, third Act's about a year old, and it's going great guns. We're tens of thousands of volunteers around the country now. And it really came out of the understanding that there was a kind of gap here. A, a, a lot of people over the age of 60 who were alarmed about the way that our planet and our country were headed, uh, that it wasn't turning out the way we'd imagined when we were younger, uh, that you know the poles were melting and the capital was being invaded. And so we, um, we banded together to try and see what we could do about it. And we've done a lot of work in the last year. There was a ton of it focused around elections and the midterm elections. And now we're heavily focused on going after the banks that are bankrolling the fossil fuel industry. So it's been very exciting work, I got to say, as much fun as I've ever had doing anything. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, so there are a lot of groups that are focusing on the banks and on getting the banks to divest from fossil fuels. So, are, you know, um, and I'll have to think off the top of my head of the different ones. I'm sure you know what they are, too. Um, so are you does third act collaborate with them or do you do your own thing and you know but absolutely no it's all this is all collaborative what third act has done is picked a day and uh said this is going to be the day when we're going to be out uh doing our best to draw attention to this nexus between cash in the bank and carbon in the air and once we'd picked the date, we've been encouraging everybody to join in, and everybody has been joining in. The Sierra Club and uh, uh, 350 and uh, uh, dozens and dozens of other groups, uh, Interfaith Power and Light and Green Faith and uh, on and on and on have all joined in to help make this into a big day. At the moment, there's already uh, 50-some demonstrations in more than 20 states planned. Uh, I'm going to be in Washington, D.C. that day where there's uh, they're planning to blockade the banks with 50 of us in rocking chairs. Um, so we're we're uh, uh, I think we're going to finally really help people see that the banks are in their way as dangerous as the oil companies that they support. Yeah. And, and full disclosure, I'm also going to be in D.C., probably in a rocking chair. Um, Excellent. Uh, It'll be fun to be with you. Yeah, yeah. I just, we just heard today that uh, Ben Jealous, the new head of the Sierra Club, who was the former head of the NAACP, will be joining us in Washington that day, giving a talk at the rally and things. So it's just shaping up to be, a, a, well, a real return to the streets after the pandemic uh, for the climate movement. Right. And one thing I know that's been talked about is uh, you know, that uh, elders are stepping up, um, but that we want to, you know, support and make alliances with young people who have been at the forefront. Do you know if there's anything specific going on to, uh, you know, ally with, um, you know, uh, younger people who also have this as their climate change as their main concern? Is there anything for oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, this bank stuff really started a year ago when the Fridays for the Future crew reached out to us and said, will you support this demonstrations we're doing at banks? And uh, that was really the first action that Third Act engaged in. And it was lots of fun. Uh, among other things, I remember being in Boston for a big demonstration outside the banks and the young people were doing all the leading and all the talking. But there was a big group of us there 
with hairlines like mine, you know, and we had a big banner that said fossils against fossil fuels. So we are playing our part too. And that part is really to help back up the tremendous work that young people are doing. They're the ones who are going to have to live their whole lives uh, in a planet damaged by climate change. You know, I'll be dead before it hits its absolute worst. So uh, uh, that's a big part of what we do. I love the slogan, fossils against fossil fuels. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got uh, these, uh, you know, actions going on at banks all around the country. And it is it true that you would like to get as many people as possible to D.C. or are you actually? No. Uh, people should go to, I mean, people should go to where they are. And there's so many of these actions now that for almost everybody, there should be something relatively close to home. And there'll be big gatherings in many of the places you'd expect, San Francisco and Seattle and New York and Boston and on and on. Okay, so there's a slogan. It's like, I think on a big giant scissors that says cut it out or we'll cut it up. Is that right? <laughs> exactly right. Uh, turns out that, uh, you know, uh, cutting up your credit card from one of these banks is a pretty good way to make a statement because it costs them a lot of money to recruit new customers for their credit cards. And they really, um, in particular, uh, worry that uh, uh, they won't be able to attract new young customers to their credit card business if they're identified as the bad actors that they are right now in the climate space. So that's really one of the things that we're focusing on. And in fact, I heard today there'll be, a, we should have videos soon of a, a underwater credit card cutting on the coral reef, dying coral reefs off the Florida Keys and in Alaska, our crew are building a big wooden credit card that they're going to cut up with chainsaws. And so the message should be getting out, I think. Oh, that's great. Wow. Um, so in terms of, um, let me just think I had something went out of my head. I wanted to ask you. Oh, just so, yeah. So we haven't actually mentioned the names of the bad banks that people are calling the bad Absolutely. banks. Absolutely. So um, bank. Citibank. Yeah, me, I'm sorry, we were talking over each other. So let me just ask that again. So we haven't actually talked yet about which are these bad banks. Can you identify them? I sure can. The, the wall of shame is uh, Citibank, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America. These are the four biggest banks in the U.S. They're also the four biggest lenders in the world to the fossil fuel industry. They've lent the industry more than a trillion dollars since the Paris Climate Accords were signed. They did not need Donald Trump to sabotage the Paris Accords. Uh, they were quite happy to do it themselves. And we think that they're susceptible to pressure. Uh, great campaigning in Europe in December resulted in the biggest bank in Europe, HSBC, announcing that it would no longer be funding exploration for new oil and gas fields. That's a good start and one we wish the American banks would follow up on. Yeah, that's important. Wow. Um, so and so as, as well as cutting up credit cards, I guess you're also asking people to close their accounts and move to either you know a credit union or a smaller bank that isn't big enough to be bad. Is that right? 
Sure, that makes sense. And there's some big banks that are useful too. First Republic Bank in California, Amalgamated Bank in New York, Beneficial State on the West Coast, some uh, web banks and things. But truthfully, we don't even need you to necessarily cut up your credit card or close your account. What we need you to do is join in this political action against these banks, calling attention to them. Very few of us uh, have bank accounts large enough or credit card bills large enough that Chase or City or whatever may not even notice if you close your account. But they will notice if you are outside their bank with a big banner, if you're uh, uh, blocking the door with a rocking chair, if you're taking the art kit that we've got and building a cardboard smokestack to go next to the bank. Uh, uh, all of that is precisely the kind of thing that harms their reputation, calls their, uh, you know, endless greenwashing into account and and produces the kind of change that we need to see. So, yes, it's a good idea to move your account. But if you can't, I mean, some people have mortgages that have been there for years, whatever. Don't worry about it. You can join in this kind of action anyway. OK, good point. Good point. So. Um... Is there anything else you want to say about uh, this upcoming action? Uh, only that it should be um, should be beautiful, I think, and 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 I hope fun for people to be engaged in. You know, we need to be able to draw the connection between cash in the bank and carbon in the air, and it will take some creativity to do that. So people need to bring their uh, most creative selves to this work, and if they do, it will be successful. That was Bill McKibben with Third Act. Check out the actions happening around the country at thirdact.org. You've been listening to The Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9.30 a.m. here on WPKN 89.5 FM. For more environmental news you can use.